Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Well, we're in this series called On Purpose. We've been looking at our mission statement or our purpose as a church and uh, trying to show you guys where that comes from in God's Word, why we've adopted that as our mission as a church, why we stick to it even if it offends people, um, even if people leave our church because of it, we stick to this statement. And this is it on the screen. It's uh, creating a culture of redemption, maybe. Creating a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus. Each week in this series, we've been taking a piece of that statement, showing you where it comes from in God's Word, trying to dig deeper into it, and uh, hopefully we can all kind of rally around it and come together and kind of live out this mission together um, for Jesus. That's his goal, that we as a church would be united as one. And that we would um, be as close to each other as he is to God the Father. And so that's our goal. That's a lofty goal. And so um, we're trying to be that. We're trying to unite together around the mission of Jesus and change the world with it. And so uh, if you were here back in week one, we talked about what it looks like to create a culture of redemption. That's a place where redemption is the expected norm. We expect at our church to see Jesus save people. And so when it happens, we're not surprised. We're glad. But we're not surprised. I don't know if you're like behind the scenes enough to know this or plugged in enough to know this. But in the month of January, we got to watch six more adults give their life to Jesus. And um, I don't know. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Made me feel like Tim Tebow. I was like going to get down on one knee. But um, yeah, that's good stuff. And so uh, I've been in several different churches in my life. And I just want you to know if you haven't, that doesn't happen everywhere. And so, like, I want to be thankful to God for that, but I'm not shocked. I expect Jesus to save people, and, and sometimes when people get saved and, and they decide to follow Jesus, you're just thinking, like, what's well, about time? I've been waiting for that and praying for that for months or years, and so uh, we just expect Jesus to save people. That's a culture of redemption, right? And then in the week two, we talked about freedom, what it looks like to have an environment where people are free, and so uh, we, we want to create that, a place where we um, strip away all the religious regulation that's on people, and we just get down to um, what the Bible actually says, what God actually says to us. And so we don't want people to be restrained or chained up by rules or regulations that man has put on us. And so we look for opportunity after opportunity to rip all of those out of our church. And uh, sometimes that makes people angry. They come into our church and they're ticked off because the lights are low and we're serving food and the pastor's dressed like a hobo. I don't know, whatever. But it's like, but we're trying to rip away all those regulations that keep people from knowing the real gospel so that when they come here, they can just be free, free to experience the real gospel. And so in week three, we talked about what that real gospel is. It's the truth and grace of Jesus. And uh, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to show us what 100% truth is. And 100% grace all at the same time looked like. And we looked last week at John chapter 1 that lets us know that that element of Jesus' character, that's the glory of God being shined out or revealed to the rest of the world. 100% truth and 100% grace all the time. And, and I shared last week that that's probably the number one reason why people leave our church. They get very offended at this concept that we're going to stick to 100% truth and 100% grace all the time. And, and a lot of churches and a lot of Christians are very comfortable with 100% grace. Or a lot of Christians or a lot of churches are very comfortable with 100% truth. But when you mix them both together, it gets very difficult. And, and I shared the reason for that is because it's easy to give 100% grace to the people I love. My kids do something wrong, I can give them all kinds of grace. 
right? But it is hard to give 100% grace to the people who annoy me. You with me? And it's easy to give 100% truth to the people who annoy me. I could tell them my two cents all day. But it's very difficult to give 100% grace to those people. And so it's like this, this weird mix of like Jesus saying, it's supposed to be all of that all the time. And, and so people leave our church all the time because we're loving on people that they've considered to be too dirty to get loved. And we're giving truth. And people don't like to hear the truth sometimes. They want to just be free to do what they want to do. And so as long as we stick to sharing the truth with people, and as long as we are committed to giving grace to everybody, people are going to leave our church. And I shared that last week, but I also shared that it's, it's probably also the number one reason why people come to our church and stay here. And so we're left with this crew of people that understand the mission to give the grace and truth of Jesus to the rest of the world. Not one or the other, but both and. And so uh, we're left with this last week, and I, I really struggled um, plan in this series with this session because this last week we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. And the struggle for me was I couldn't figure out if this session should be the first week of the series or the last week of the series. I wrestled with that like for a long time, you know. And, uh, and the truth is it should be both. The Jesus Christ ought to be the very beginning of our mission and the very end of our mission. And everything in between ought to be wrapped all around him. And if the mission is anything else, then we've deviated from God's purpose and we're living by accident and hoping for the best, not living a life of intentionality. But Jesus ought to be the thing that wraps everything we do from start to finish, and I hope he is. Like We fight hard for that, and it is hard because it can easily become about like how quality the music is or how gifted the speakers are or how outstanding the kids' programs are, or how comfortable people feel when they come in. It can easily become about our own celebrity or our own kingdom. And just like that, Jesus can fade into the background in the church. It happens quick without you even realizing it sometimes. And so we're fighting all the time to keep Jesus on the very front lines of everything we're doing. We're pointing people to him. And so uh, I called this session today, Jesus Over Everything, probably because I was listening to that, uh, who, who's the people do that song? I can't remember that, people in Nashville. Anybody remember? Uh, the what? Belonging Company? Yeah, yeah, I was listening to that song maybe when I was playing the series. But Jesus Over Everything. And then I thought for a while, like, I really could have even called this session Just Jesus. Just Jesus. But Jesus Over Everything is kind of what I landed on. And so I hope that everything we do as a church will communicate to you as a church family and hopefully to the rest of the world that over everything we do, Jesus is the umbrella, that he's all that matters. And I think in a room like this and the people who come to Three Strands or people who call themselves Three Stranders, that you would agree with that statement for the most part. I think you'd have a hard time finding a lot of people who call this their church they would be like, yeah, Jesus doesn't matter, or Jesus isn't the most important thing. We would all say that. It all sounds good in theory that, that we're supposed to be walking around grabbing people everywhere, if they're on the streets, if they're where we work, if they're where we go to school, and we're just pointing them to Jesus. They're like, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me show you what Jesus looks like. Let me show you how he acts. Let me tell you how he can change your life. Let me give you all the answers Jesus provides. I think we'd all kind of come to some agreement. That's the goal. That should be the umbrella over all of it. And that all makes sense, but you come to a church service like this, and you're kind of left with a bunch of questions. Like, what does it actually mean for my life? 
How does that actually affect me in the real world? It's, it's this question. This is the question I want to ask you today when it comes to the idea of Jesus being over everything and everyone and every piece of what we do as a church. Here's the real question for today. You ready? So what? So what? Because if you just say, I believe that, or you just agree with the fact that Jesus is over everything, and then you go out of here and it doesn't have anything to do with your life, so what? So the real question is like, what does it mean for me that Jesus is supposed to be over everything? That Jesus is supposed to be, in theology class, you would call this uh, the doctrine of supremacy. That Jesus is preeminent. He is first and best over everything right? He never takes a backseat. We never get to sit on the throne. He's always the king. Supremacy. He is the supreme one over all of us. But so what? What does that mean for my life? And so I could take you to a lot of different passages in God's word. This um, supremacy doctrine, this is all over the Bible, woven all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the Messiah is the king, the son of God. He is the one who is supreme over all. But I'm just going to take you to one. And you can study this all on your own if you want, but I'm just going to really take you to one passage. If you want to follow along, be in Colossians chapter 1 almost the whole time. I think within Colossians chapter 1 is maybe um, God's greatest declaration of who Jesus is and his supremacy over everything. And so I want to share that with you today. If you want to flip there or click there, the words will be on the screen too. But Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to spend most of our time. And Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians um, in Colossae. And he writes this letter, and the first thing he says to them, I think is similar to what he would write to Three Strands, if I'm being honest. Now, you could be like, well, dude, you're the pastor. You're kind of biased. You like your church, you know, and all that. But I really look around, and I see people in our church just like crushing it for Jesus. Just giving Jesus all they got. And I think Paul would write a very similar thing to us. And so he writes this letter to this church. And at the beginning of it, he says, hey, this is a letter from Paul and Timothy, your fellow servants in the faith. And he says, uh, I pray for you guys. And when I pray, I just thank God that you love Jesus so much. And I think, man, Paul might say that about us. I pray and I thank God that you love Jesus so much and that you're serving him so well and you're doing such a great job of living your lives for Jesus. I'm thankful for that. I think he would be thankful for our church. I think he would hear that six more people decided to follow Jesus in January and he would clap too. I think he would hear that we're baptizing people on Easter Sunday and there's already 10 people waiting to be baptized. I think he'd be flipping out of this world for that. I think he'd be so pumped and be so thankful for that. I think he'd hear that we have more people than ever plugged into committed serving roles and he'd be jazzed up about that. I think he'd hear that we just took the most people we've ever taken to the advance and people decided to follow Jesus while we were there and other people grew in their faith and were stretched and people shed tears and laughed together. I think he'd be pumped up about that. I think he'd hear that we've got more people than ever in life groups around the county, that we have 12 life groups meeting now and somewhere around 130 people a week meeting in these small groups in people's homes all over the community. I think he'd be pumped up about that. I think he'd pray and he'd say, I'm so thankful for Three Strands Church. They love Jesus so much. Thank you guys for loving Jesus with all you got. And then he um, goes on and he says, I pray about two more things for you too. And those are the two things I want to share with you today. And I think he'd pray those same things for us because there are two things that you can lose easily as a church. And he prays for them. I'm going to show them both to you. And then I'm going to dig into, because right after he says he prays for these things, he, 
he unleashes this declaration about who Jesus is. And what he's really going to say is, these two things can escape your church life so quickly. But if you will keep your eyes on how great Jesus is, if you will stay focused on Jesus being the first and the best over everything, you won't lose these two things. You'll keep them. So let me show you the two things he prays first. The first one I called um, the vaccine from the villains, okay? That's, that's my way of like making it sound, I don't know, alliterated, I guess. But a vaccine from the villains, okay? So let me read it to you, what he prays, and then we'll come back and talk about it just a little bit. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse, starting in verse 9, he says, So we have not stopped praying for you since we he first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. He, he's like, I'm praying that you will know God better, that you will have more wisdom, more understanding of who he is, that you will keep in your mind's eye how big and great our God is. And if you do that, it will help you to live the life uh, that God wants you to live. It will help you to produce fruit and have a life that is just full of all the plans God has for you. And if you don't do that, if you don't gain wisdom, if you don't know who God is, if you don't keep his bigness in the forefront of your mind, you can lose it just like that and believe anything. You can stop obeying the truth. You can start convincing yourself that anything I do is okay. And that's a real danger in church. Now, we don't have time to look through the whole book of Colossians. I would challenge you to read the whole four chapters on your own. But I'm just going to flip. You know what? This won't be on the screen. But if you have your Bible, you can just flip to Colossians chapter 2. I just want to read you a couple of examples of how he doubles down on this concept. I'm just going to look through it real quick. But you can check it out on your own sometime if you want. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Because that can happen in the church. Look at verse 8. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And so you also are complete with your union, through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And then look down at verse, uh, look down at verse 16 in chapter 2, if you're there, if you got it. If not, just listen. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths. For these rules are only a shadow, only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Oh, I love that, man. I love that. He's going to double down on this over and over. If, if you don't stay focused on how great Jesus is, on how important he is, if you don't keep focused on his preeminence over everything, if he isn't the reason for everything we do, if he isn't the overarching goal of everything we're trying to accomplish, then you run the risk of getting tricked by stuff that sounds like the truth but isn't. This happens all the time in church. 
People come in, they hear a little bit about Jesus, they decide to follow him or they decide they need to get their life right. They keep coming, they like what they're hearing, but Jesus doesn't stay the most important thing in their life. All of a sudden, she becomes more important. All of a sudden, it becomes more important. They don't even know it because right at the beginning, it becomes more important, but they keep going to church. They keep reading their Bible. They keep going to life group. But, but somehow money became more important or career became more important or my family became more important or my relationship just decided to take the driver's seat. It's amazing how often people come into church, decide they need to get their life right with the Lord, and within a week get offered a job that pays them more money but keeps them out of church all the time. Or within a week, the most beautiful girl they've ever seen walks by, and she can't stand Jesus. It's amazing how often people decide they need Jesus, but won't make him the first and best in their life. And something else rips them away almost instant. It happens all the time. It can happen easily. You can have been in church for 50 years. You can have been a follower of Jesus and have your life committed to the Lord and have been serving him for decades. And just like that, you can take your eyes off of him and you can go the way of the prodigal son. You can disappear and get into anything. And as soon as you think like, I could never do that, let everybody who thinks they stand take heed lest they fall. We are all capable of all of it. It's easy to look at other people and say, I could never be like them. I could never be sinful like that. I could never do what they did to people. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. We're all sinful. And if Jesus doesn't stay at the top, on the throne, most important, then we run the risk of doing and believing anything that's out there. I, I, this isn't in my notes, so it's probably going to make me go long, and then I'll get yelled up on my wife later. But anyhow... So I was thinking today, something I shared with our church a few years ago, if you were here then, you might have heard this, but uh, when I was reading that passage in there, uh, I can't remember what verse it was, like 16 or, I don't have it on the screens, right? Chapter 2, verse whatever, 16 or something like that, where he said about like, don't, don't believe all these philosophies that sound so good to you, but really aren't the truth. And he says, they're just like shadows of the real thing. Did you hear that in there? He's like, but Jesus is reality. He's like, don't buy into these phony philosophies or, 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 or this, the latest thing somebody's telling you or, because they're just a shadow of a good thing. They're not the real good thing. The real good thing is Jesus. And so you have to kind of decide ahead of time, it doesn't matter to me what my teachers say. It doesn't matter to me what my boss says. It doesn't matter to me what my neighbors say. It doesn't matter to me what science says or medicine says or politicians say. None of that matters. I've decided up front it only matters what Jesus says. All those other things, they may be good, but they're just shadows of the real thing. The real thing is Jesus. And it, it reminded me of a couple years ago when I shared it. If you ever had to read like Plato's Republic in school growing up, I don't know, but if you had like a, a, an English class, literature class or something like that, you had to read Plato's Republic. In Plato's Republic, there's this little story called, uh, uh, I can't remember what it's called, now, The Allegory of the Cave, I think it's called. Remember we talking about that a couple years ago? The Allegory of the Cave, right? And so uh, he's writing this um, little short story within, within the Republic, and he, he, it's like a conversation between his brother and Socrates. And, and in the story, you just have to use your imagination for a second, okay? In the story, he says, imagine there was a cave. And in the cave, there were some people sitting, facing the back wall of the cave, right? Now, imagine all of these people are chained up. 
They're sitting there facing the back wall of the cave, chained up, and they're chained so tightly that they're incapable of turning their head to even see anything behind them, right? And they sit there. Now imagine they were born that way. And they're just sitting there facing the back wall of the cave, chained up to where they can't look around, and they've never seen anything other than the back wall of that cave, right? And then he says, now imagine there's a fire built inside the cave, and that inside that fire, between that fire and these chained up people, is this pathway, okay? Can you guys see it in your head so far? And he says, down that pathway, people walk. And sometimes they carry stuff, objects come through, people come through, sometimes they're silent, sometimes they talk. But these people here can hear the sound of what those people were saying bouncing off the back wall of the cave. They can't see them because they can't turn around, but they see shadows of them on the back wall from the fire, right? Now imagine that's all you could ever see. And, and you grew up that way from birth. After enough time, he says in this allegory, he says, don't you suppose that these people sitting here chained up, only ever having seen those shadows, would suppose in their minds that the shadows were reality and that anything else was just fake? And then he says, imagine if you came and you cut all those chains off those people and you had them turn around. Don't you think the light from the fire would almost blind their eyes for a moment because they'd only ever seen shadows on the wall and never the full brightness of the fire. And the guy he's talking to says, yeah. And he says, now imagine if you take those people and you walk them outside of the cave into the brightest sunlight of day. Don't you think it would be hard for them to even look at it? And, and don't you think even at that point, after having seen real people and real things, and sunlight, don't you think even at that point, most of them would still prefer the shadows that they had watched on the back of the cave wall their whole life as reality? Don't you think it would be hard for them to ever accept that what I'm seeing out here is real and that that stuff is only a shadow? And this wasn't a Christian allegory, but my goodness, can't you see like the parallel in there of how people are just chained up their whole lives and all they ever see is a shadow of good things. And Paul is saying, don't, don't take your eyes off of Jesus because when you do, you start to look at these shadows and think they're the real thing. You start to be convinced that no matter what anybody tells you, that's just fairy tale. Make believe. And that, what I can see back there, what I can feel and experience, that's the real thing. And so Paul is saying, you have to keep Jesus as number one, first and best, supreme over everything, and it will vaccinate you against that type of belief. It will vaccinate you against the villains who are preaching all these philosophies that sound good, but really aren't good. They're just shadows. See, if your Jesus is big enough, you can't be tricked. You can't be tricked. Here's the second thing he prays for him. It's in chapter 1 of Colossians, starting in verse 11. He says, We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power. So you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. 
He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. These are two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So here's the second thing he's saying. I'm not only praying that you will keep Jesus first in your life so you won't be tricked by phony beliefs. You won't be tricked into doing the wrong thing. But I'm also praying that you will be just so, so focused on Jesus. His bigness will overshadow everything in your life that you will have joy no matter what you face. That no matter what comes your way, you'll be able to endure it and thank God that it's there. You'll be just so full of joy when you think about how God has already transferred you into this huge kingdom of Jesus. How Jesus has already forgiven your sins and set you free. You will just be overwhelmed with joy. You got it? So I called this one the joy in the junk. I know, it's the same idea. You got, you got what I'm saying there, so. Sorry, it's not very creative. I'm sorry, it's all I got. Joy in the junk. No matter how bad the junk gets in my life, there is still joy if my eyes are focused on Jesus, if he is still the most important thing, if everything revolves around him, there will still be joy. It's why people throughout history have been able to stand and be executed and thankful and joyful while it's happening. Now, we don't get that a lot in America in America, we have very little resistance to persecution. If somebody says a mean thing about us on Facebook, like we're ruined for the week. But in other places in the world and throughout history, Christians have literally been fed to lions or burned at the stake for their faith. And while that's happening, they've been singing songs to Jesus. Because if your Jesus is big enough, then you will always have joy. If your Jesus is big enough, you will be filled with joy even in the middle of chaos, in the middle of adversity. All right. And so then right after that, he reads this like powerful testimony of who Jesus is. I want to read it for you today. In this description of Jesus, he's declaring Jesus' supremacy over everything. And, and he really boils it down into two things that Jesus is supreme over. I'm going to give you the first one, then we'll read it. The first one he says is the creation. Jesus is supreme over all creation, the whole universe. Let me read it to you. It's in, starting in verse 15. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Isn't that what we just talked about last week, that Jesus reflects the image and character of God? He shows us grace and truth. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything Everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Do you, do you hear this like echoing through those words? Jesus is better than all of it. He was before any of it. He made all of it. It was all made for him, and even still today, he's the one holding it all together. If Jesus stopped right now, we'd all fall apart. But he is so big, so supreme, that he existed before anything else existed. He wasn't created. He is God. He created everything you see and everything you don't see. Everything you believe in and everything you don't believe in. Jesus created it all. And it was all created for his own pleasure. That's how big he is. And if he stopped for one second, 
the whole universe would fall apart. He holds it all together. That's how supreme he is. We could spend a whole series just on that idea if we wanted to. But I just wanted to share that with you. Jesus is supreme over the whole creation. And that should be part of what helps us remember how big he is. And if I can remember how big he is, and I make him that big in my life, then I will be way less likely to believe the junk that people are selling out there. And I will be way less less likely to let all the junk happening to me drag me down and steal my joy. I can keep my joy, and I can keep laser-focused on the life God wants me to have if Jesus stays the biggest. And then the second thing that he says, Jesus, and you think to yourself, like, why would he have to say that Jesus is supreme over anything else? You just said the whole universe. Isn't that everything? It's like, yes, it is, which makes the next thing even more fascinating. It's the only reason, really, we're sharing this specific passage today when it comes to this part of our mission statement as a church. Because he says that Jesus is supreme over the creation. And then he's going to say, Jesus is also supreme over the church. And you're like, why would he even have to say that? Isn't the church part of creation? But he thought it was so important to clarify this for us. Let me read it to you. Going to verse 18 in chapter 1. He says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, So he is first in everything. You hear these ideas, right? For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. There's that idea of Jesus reflecting God to us. And through him, verse 20, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So let me just dig into this one for just a second. He really kind of sums up Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, Jesus' headship, Jesus' supremacy over our church. Forget about every other church for a second, three stranders. Just our church. We can't be responsible for what people are doing in Texas or Oklahoma or Zimbabwe. I'm just responsible for what I'm doing right here. Okay? So when it comes to our church, Jesus is supreme over everything we are and everything we do. And Paul lays out three things that make him supreme. Here's the first one. You ready? That he's the head of the church. He's the brains. He's the one that calls the shots. He gets to tell us what to do and what not to do. And I don't like all of it. And I'm the pastor. I don't like all of it. There's people that annoy me. I'd like to be like, can you get out? I just don't like you. I feel like that sometimes. There's people that get into things and I don't want to talk to them about it. I don't like that all the time. I'd rather stay out of everybody's business. There's things that happen all the time. I don't like it that it requires money for us to have a successful church in American culture today. I don't like that. But it's kind of the way it is. It costs money to rent this place. I don't like it, but it is how it is. And we could all go to my house But the 40 college students on Wednesday night are our max capacity. I checked with the fire marshal. So all of us wouldn't fit at our house, okay? There's a lot of things like that about the Christian experience. Sometimes people make breakfast food, and I don't like it. I could say something about it, or I could just swallow my tongue and just go ahead and eat it anyhow, right? Or not even eat it, whatever. It's like you don't always have to get your way. I remember like when I was thinking about planning a church, like as a college student, just thinking like, someday I'll plan it. You're so stupid when you're in college. I'm just saying. But, like, I was like, I'm going to plan a church. It's going to be just like I want it to be. 
It's not anything like I want it to be. It's, I was like, at best, you get about 30 or 40% of what you want as the pastor. And then the rest, you got to figure out how to work with. People don't do what you want just because you're the pastor. And sometimes they do the opposite because you're the pastor, you know? And uh, it's like, but, but Jesus is the head of this thing. Not me. Not Kenny. There's no position in our church that qualifies you to be in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's the head. He gets to be the mouthpiece. We're just all his messengers taking his message to other people. He gets to call the shots. He's the brains of the operation. He puts all the thought in it. If he says to do it, we say we're going to do it. If he says to jump, we say how high. He's the boss, right? In that way, he is supreme over the church. Then the second way he says is that Christ is the first risen from the dead. He's the first one to rise from the dead. And you're like, oh, that gives him supremacy over us. He's, he's done whatever. When we get new life and God raises us from the dead, Jesus did it first. And nobody gets resurrection life. Nobody gets life and freedom in Christ and says like, this is ridiculous. Jesus got to rise from the dead first. No, you're just like, thank you for rescuing me too. You're not ticked off because Jesus is the first and best at that. You're thankful about it, right? And so Jesus is resurrection before we are resurrection. He is new life. He is the first to rise from the dead. And that way he's supreme over the church. And then the last one he gives in that last verse I read there, that um, Jesus is, uh, uh, that redemption takes place. I can't remember how I wrote it now. I'll put it on the screen a second. I can't remember. That Jesus is the only atonement for the church. That all the atonement that God's going to provide, the freedom, the redemption, all that stuff takes place through Jesus on the cross giving up his blood. He's the only atonement for the church, and in that way, he's the first. And in other words, like, he is authoritatively the first, the head of the church. He is powerfully the first, the only one that rose from the dead, and the first of all to rise from the dead. And he is sacrificially the first. He isn't like a God who says, like, now you do everything I say, and just be thankful that I even talk to you. No, he says, I'll do all the work. I'll sacrifice everything. I am all the information you need. I am all the power you need. I am all the work you need. I'm all of it. First and best over everything. It's fascinating. His place is supreme in every way in the church. See, there have been many good teachers in history. Many good professors, many good prophets, many good Bible scholars. And they can all lead you to goodness. But there's only ever been one who can lead you to glory. That's Jesus. That's what makes him different. He's not leading you to be a better person. He's leading you to have a brand new life. He's supreme over all of it, revealing God's glory to us. Now, this is common throughout a lot of the writings, especially in the New Testament. I'm just going to read you two quick ones, right? In, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes this in chapter 3, verse 20. Now all glory to God. Does that sound like Jesus first? God first. All the attention off us. All the attention on him. All the credit from us. All the credit to him. I don't want any of it. All the glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. These um, doxologies, these, these, these wordings, they're all throughout the Bible, giving all the attention, all the credit, all the authority, all the reward to Jesus who deserves it. 
The entire book of Hebrews is really written around this topic of the supremacy of Christ. So you could read through that whole book if you want more on this. But look at how the writer of Hebrews starts Hebrews chapter 1. He says, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, He created the universe. There's these same preeminence, the same supremacy again, right? The Son radiates God's own glory. There's this same idea that Jesus is this perfect reflection of God's glory and expresses the very character of God. And He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When He had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Preeminent, majesty, supreme over everything, first and best, always Jesus. Just Jesus. You get it? And people walk through this world with their eyes on all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Some people are walking through this world with their eyes down. And they're just so ashamed of what they are but not me. And some people are walking through this life with their eyes in, just so selfish that I refuse to live that way. And some people are walking through this life with their eyes out on everybody else, spending their whole life comparing themselves to everybody around them. But I will not live that way. And what Jesus is calling us to do as a church is to not look in any of those directions, but to keep our eyes up and be completely dependent on him. That's dependency. Because the rest of the world sees us walking around like this and they think we're idiots. Like, you can't walk like that. You're going to trip over something. Yeah, but I'm not calling the shots. I'm just following directions. You say you can't walk around with your head up in the air like that. You're, you're going you're gonna to get beat up. You're going you're gonna to get hurt. You're just going to be too weak. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm staying dependent and weak. All my strength comes from Jesus. And you know, people are looking at you like, you can't, you can't walk around like that. You won't even be able to function in this world. You're like, no, you don't, you don't understand. I'm not relying on me. I'm surrendering me. Jesus is doing all the work. I know it looks like I don't have any power this way. I'm not going to accomplish any great work this way. I'm not going to be able to figure out what to do or where to go this way. But all that is Jesus. He's the one giving the directions. He's got the authority. He's the one providing the power. He's the first to rise from the dead. He's the one that's doing all the work. I just receive atonement. I don't have to do any of the work. I don't have to be strong enough. I don't have to be smart enough. I just keep my eyes on him. And if I walk through life with my eyes on him, him the biggest, doing whatever he says, believing whatever he tells me, it will protect my life. It will vaccinate my life against all the false garbage I might believe. And it will vaccinate my life and it will protect my life against losing the joy I have when tough times come against me. And if I don't keep my eyes on him, I'll lose those things like that. That's my goal is to stay as dependent as I can 
on Jesus. That's actually the goal, the Christian experience. I've shared this with our church before, but if dependency on God is the objective, then weakness becomes our advantage. And so I stay weak and I brag about my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then he's strong. And we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We set our affections on things above, not on things on this earth. We stay focused, laser focused, and connected to the true life-giving vine. We look for ways to decrease ourselves and increase him. We make space for one and only one hero in this church, and it's Jesus. We do everything we do for the audience of one because it protects us from believing the lies that sound like they're right, but they're just shadows. And it brings us joy no matter what we face. Now, listen to how Paul ends this chapter and just ask yourself, this is how you know if Jesus is the most important. Okay? Is this a description of your life as a Christian? Is this a description? You ready? This is what he says. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 28. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Is that your experience as a Christian? Because they didn't say anything about coming into a building and watching somebody perform. He didn't say anything about the pastor has to know all the answers. He talked about his own passion to tell everybody about Jesus, to present more people, to grab more people and be like, it's Jesus. Let me point you towards him. He's the one who can save you. He's got all the answers for your life. I want to present more people to Jesus and be like, Jesus, I pointed you out to them. Here they are. I don't have any strength, any power. I just want to be more dependent on you. And I don't usually do this. I was telling Kenny before church, every once in a blue moon, I feel like I write something in my notes that is like, like gold nugget worthy. It's pretty rare, you know? So, but usually like in my notes, uh, like it's like about a page long. And, and when I was like prepping this week, I got to like right here. And I left this chunk down here blank. And I'm just gonna let that blank and pray the rest of the week. And Saturday night, I want to just write in something there, like whatever God puts on my heart. And I just started writing, and I had to delete like 20 times what's there. I just kept writing. I was like, ah, I can't put it all in. And I wrote this out, and then I was looking at that this morning, and I was like, I don't usually do this. I like to be very conversational when I preach. But this is so good, I'm afraid I'm going to screw it up. Like, it's not good because I'm so good. I'm just saying it's like, but I don't want to like missay it. So I want to read you my thoughts from last night as I was thinking of a way to sum up this idea that Jesus is the most supreme over everything and over everything in our church. And um, there's a couple like good quotes in here. They'll be on the screen probably as we go. But let me just read what I wrote to end this, okay? We put up with tribulations, with trials, with temptations. We endure people saying awful things about us and those who are actively trying to destroy what Jesus is building here. We press on to reach the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We stay weak and humble because when we are weak, then he is strong. We aren't building a club or a charity. We are building a church, the church of Jesus Christ. And we are going to stay laser focused on his mission. We're going to keep expecting God to redeem people. 
We're going to keep looking for ways to free people from the man-made restraints that prevent them from knowing the real gospel. We're going to keep exposing people to the truth and grace of Jesus. We're going to keep pointing everyone and every ounce of credit towards the one and only hero, Jesus. And this is what we rally around. This is what we rally around. Because you might see me and think I'm disgusting. You might see my kids and think I don't know how to parent. You might look at my past and think I don't deserve grace. And you might know my personality and think I can't ever get along with that guy. But we don't unify, we don't unite around our personalities. It's our Savior, not our similarities, that unites us as a church. And so we will keep lifting Jesus up. Because when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. This is his church. This is his mission. This is his body. What if we were a church full of people who were living our lives on purpose instead of by accident? Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, would you just make us so close to each other? so loving towards each other that the rest of the world would see us and know that we're your disciples by our love for each other. Would you unite us, Father, not around our personalities, not around our gifts, not around our upbringing, not around our cleanliness. Would you unite us around your son, Jesus? Let us all keep our eyes focused on him. God, would you convict our hearts in every area that we've taken Jesus off the throne and we've allowed something else or someone else or a different opinion or another philosophy to be just slightly more important than his. And in so doing, God, we have positioned ourselves in danger, in danger of believing lies, in danger of losing our joy. But today, God, I, I beg you to unite us We just want to see you keep rescuing people. I want to get to the end of this year and think we set our goals too low because our God is so big. Would you just give everybody in the room the courage it's going to take to keep their eyes laser focused on you no matter what it costs them this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.